Well, it's very fitting that we talked about missions this morning because that's really the subject of uh, the latter part of Romans chapter 15. You can ask yourself, what is that, that special quality, that uh, unique drive that sends people to distant places in order to share the gospel? Have you ever wondered about that? Like, uh, what is that special thing that makes them go? What makes ordinary people do out of the ordinary things? to further the kingdom of God and uh, whether it's Pam or, or Kelsey or Dave Rogers or the Rhodes family we had here a few weeks ago in Sunday school or uh, a lot of the missionaries it was interesting when the Rhodes were here because uh, the, the dad in the family David he, um, he's, he's a guy that works with his hands he's not a theologian or anything like that and, but they need people in the mission field to make things and keep machinery running and keep buildings together and all of that kind of stuff so he's taken his family overseas for the rest of their lives to do that, to maintain things in out-of-the-way places, New Guinea and Africa and places like that. Just a regular guy. And it's not some coercive duty. Um, There's not an expectation from youth that's just drummed into people, a life goal drummed into every little Christian child. It's, um, you know, you're going to go on a mission when you're 18 or whatever like that, like some groups might might do. Um, No, the Christian missionary is... is, uh, you know, excluding the divine factor, of course, a self-motivated uh, person. That might be the wrong term. It's really a gift uh, of God's grace and a calling from God. A gift of the Spirit, a, a divine appointment to an office, a holy office, that of um, a missionary. Paul saw it as a work of grace. In Romans chapter 15, verse 14, he speaks of, quote, the grace that was given to me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. It was a gift of grace to be an apostle and a missionary. That's not quite a perspective from what we... It's just not what you would expect from a guy who describes his missionary life the way Paul did, that this is some kind of a gift of grace. I mean, if you've read the New Testament, you know the kind of experiences that Paul had. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 4, he said, in everything describing the apostolic calling, he said, in everything commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance and afflictions and hardships and distresses and beatings and imprisonments and tumults and labors and sleeplessness and hunger and purity and knowledge and patience and kindness and the Holy Spirit and genuine love. Those things go together in an amazing way. Torment and purity and knowledge and kindness and patience and love. Isn't that funny? Isn't it funny how the more you have, the less loving you are sometimes? Isn't that funny how that works? in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying yet behold, we, we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. In another place, he says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 11, he says, To this present hour we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Now, Being the scum of the world is probably not what most people would think of as a gift of divine grace. But that's exactly how Paul viewed his life. Happily so. 
As long as he was in God's will, fulfilling his calling, he was a, a blessed man. Not that many trials and challenges were easy to go through or pleasant in themselves, but he long ago, when Christ first called him on the road to Damascus, he gave up his life and he was determined to live for God as God ordained his life. Why live like everybody else? Why not change the world? And that's what he did. So the missionary has a God-given desire to move the gospel forward, to advance the kingdom of God as he or she sees it. And they do see it as a privilege to do that. In fact, it is both a gift and an office, that of a missionary, or what the New Testament calls an evangelist. If you look at Ephesians chapter 4, real quick, we'll be back to Romans. Paul is talking about, in Ephesians 4, those individuals that uh, Christ has given to the church in order that his people might be properly equipped for service. That service being in verse 12 of chapter 4, building up the body of Christ as he describes it. And how is the church built? How is the church of God built in this world? By the work of gifted individuals assigned to certain offices or duties. It's built by the work of everybody, but certain people are assigned tasks that equip everybody to do those deeds and, and jobs that have to be done. But there are four key positions listed in verse 11 of chapter 4. He says, He, talking about Christ, gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. So two of these offices no longer exist. They were revelatory gifts. You can guess which those are. How many apostles do you know? Right, that's one, right? That is, their, their function was to deliver divine revelation, apostles and prophets, infallible testimony to the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ and an explanation of what it means for us. That was their job. Infallible knowledge, divine knowledge mediated through men. So those temporary offices are apostles and prophets. How do we know they're temporary? Because in chapter 2 of Ephesians, in verse 20, it says God's household has been built on the foundation of of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Well, maybe that's just talking about like when you plan a church and you get one started, that's the foundation. That goes on all the time. Yeah, but that's what the evangelist does. The only thing unique about apostles and prophets is their revelatory gifts, that they are speaking divine truth. That is the foundation of the church laid by them. Their doctrine and witness squaring with the cornerstone. And who's the cornerstone? That's Christ. So building off of his perfect cornerstone there, his work and his person, they lay a foundation of divine revelation explaining who he is and what he came to do and all about him. When their work is done, the foundation is laid. And then it's time to build on that foundation. Who does that? Well, the next two offices mentioned. Ephesians 4.11, evangelists and pastor teachers. The foundation is laid by divine revelation the building up as revelation is proclaimed by the evangelist and taught and maintained by the shepherds of the church. So, these two offices that remain, the evangelist is the missionary. In fact, the word evangelist comes from the Greek word for gospel, euangelion. If you spell it out properly, it, you can anglicize it. It comes up to be evangelical type word, evangelist. The Greek word here is euangelistas, a gospeler person that takes the gospel. These are the folks who are specially gifted 
and called by God to take the gospel, the good news about Christ, to those who haven't heard. All Christians are supposed to share the gospel, but some people are particularly gifted and called to do that. It's a modern idea, I think, to sort of separate the evangelistos office into different categories. So we talk about, well, an evangelist is a guy that runs around the United States and does it, and a missionary is somebody that goes across the sea and does it, or to another country and does it, or um, a church planter is somebody that maybe is even in our own community and goes to another town and plants a church there, and we have like different names, but it's all one thing in the New Testament, the, the euangelion, euangelistos, the gospel person, the gospeler. The second category, the pastor-teacher, is a teaching shepherd, one whose primary concern is to care for the flock. That's what your elders do here. That's their job. The shepherds, or the elders, preserve and mature the work that is pioneered by the euangelistos, the guy that, the gospel man, who takes the gospel out, right? It doesn't do much good if a missionary plants a church somewhere and the church becomes heretical. That doesn't do much for the kingdom of God. Or if the church just never matures. Or if the church just kind of filters away, fails to exist altogether. So both the offices are critical. The guy that gets it going, the, the planter fellow, the evangelist, and then the shepherds of the church that keep the church. Um, both are needed. And both need to be strongly supported, both prayerfully and financially, and by maintaining the highest standards for those offices so that the people that are doing that are the right kind of people. Paul is definitely a euangelistos, a proclaimer of the good news to those who haven't heard. Paul could pastor a church, but that's not where his heart was. It wasn't really his gift. His, his, and there were a couple of places where he stayed for an extended period, like in Ephesus, he stayed there for three years. Three years is a long time for a guy that wants to get out there and plant more churches. It must have been torment for him, but he did it. Because Ephesus was such a strategic place in Asia Minor, he could, he could be hitting all over Asia Minor from there. So he, he knew that, that he needed a solid church body there. But... He wanted to keep moving. The passion of his heart is to keep moving to those who haven't heard. So he, as Paul, is a, is a doubly gifted person. He is an apostle, very unique office, and he's an evangelist. And this morning, it's the latter quality I want to look at as, uh, uh, as qualities of who Paul is, because that's what he's talking about in this text, the evangelist Paul, the missionary Paul. So let's start by looking at that passion he has, that longing he has to move forward. Romans chapter... 15, Paul uses several terms there describing his desires, those strong inner drives, the promptings that come with his calling as an evangelist. Let's get a running start and pick it up at verse 18. He says, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. In the power of signs and wonders, that's an apostolic part, and the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Thus, I aspire to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, that I might not build upon another man's foundation, but as it is written, they who have no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. He takes that little quote from Isaiah, and that's kind of his life theme verse. That's what's driving him forward. I want to go to people who haven't heard before. That's what he's saying. Verse 20 describes exactly what he aspires to, to preach Christ where he has not yet been proclaimed. He doesn't want to build on another guy's work. He's a pioneer for the gospel. That's the kind of guy he is. He longs for the joy of breaking new ground, offering people that have no hope 
their only hope. And it's not that there's no work to do where he's been. I mean, if he plants a church in a city like Ephesus or Corinth or Thessalonica and there's several hundred Christians there in a little church, that's just scratching the surface of those towns. You know, Ephesus was so big, their stadium, their, uh, their theater, amphitheater, where they would hold public assemblies and stuff like that, it held 25,000 people. I mean, that was not a little village. It was a real city. So those are substantial cities. You could spend a lifetime preaching the gospel in Ephesus or Corinth or some of those big towns in, in uh, the Roman world and uh, still be evangelizing people. These are substantial places. He could have been spending a life deepening that work and strengthening what had already been accomplished, but that's not what he longed for. So once he got a work going, he would hand it to shepherds to maintain, preserve, deepen, strengthen, and advance the work there. He had an evangelist heart, new places, unreached peoples. That was where he was at. And he'd been doing that, uh, in fact, uh, at the time of the writing Romans, he'd never even been to Rome. He's so busy, he'd never visited Rome, which is uh, the capital of the empire. But he always wanted to, but he never had the time. Always new places to go. The church in Rome had started without him. In fact, it's, from all we know, the church in Rome started without an apostolic witness. It was a church that began with Christians who happened to be moving into that area or who were in Roman business or something, and they got together and started their own church. An apostle had not founded the Roman church. But he says he hopes to visit. Verse 22. For this reason, I have often been hindered from coming to you. What reason? Running around. Starting new churches, planting churches. But now, verse 23, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing, and to be helped on my way there by you, and I have first enjoyed your company for a while. I'm going to go to Spain. Unreached area, he says. Unreached. Ah, the Iberian Peninsula. That's where I'm going. A lot of weird pagans out there. The empire stretching all the way to Spain. I'm going. He says, I'm going to stop in Rome on the way. And uh, that way, uh, I'll just have a chance to stop by there. So why go there? Why, why go to Spain? and Why stop by Rome? Well, lots of reasons. The reason to stop at Rome is because, for one thing, he said in chapter 1 that he wanted to impart a spiritual gift to them. Remember Romans chapter 1, verse 11 and 12? It says, I long to see you in order that, that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. Apostles could transfer miraculous gifts to other people. They could give them to other people. So he says he wants to impart a spiritual gift to them. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you all among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. He just wants to fellowship with them, get to know the people there better. Um, he already knew some people there from previous acquaintance that had moved there, but he didn't know the whole church well. He wanted to spend time there, wanted to enjoy it. But here in chapter 15, he mentions just enjoying their company. It's obvious from chapter 16 that Paul has a lot of friends. We're going to get to chapter 16 next week. All the people he says hi to, <laughs> greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so. He knew a lot of people that were there that he'd met in other places that had gravitated to Rome. But, uh, so we knew he had a lot of friends there. But he also hopes to be helped on my way, he says in verse 24. How would they help him? Look, if you're going to Spain from Greece, you're going to go through Italy, you're going to be pretty um, wiped out for one thing. He's going to need to rest. He's going to need reprovisioning. He's going to need resources, maybe funds, maybe scouts, maybe guides, maybe people that can help him go through the area. People that had been to Spain and were now in Rome could advise him on 
where to go and the, the road conditions and all that kind of stuff, just getting advice. Rome would be the launch point to go further west. That's how evangelists think. They're going to the next place and what's going to get me there? And you know, I, I have a lot of sympathy for modern day missionaries because of all they have to go through. It takes a couple of years to raise the support to be able to go where they're going, which is really a bad, badly designed system. There's almost no way to fix it. And every time missionaries call me, I always say, yeah, you can come, but you know, budget-wise, we're already maxed out in terms of what we've already set aside for missionaries, and, but maybe you can pick up some individual support or whatever. But you know, when you have to go around and get $25 a month here, and $50 a month there, and, and have 200 different groups of people or churches to support you with little bits of money, it's just maddening. It's, much, it's a much better system, but it's so hard to get to that system where churches support fewer missionaries with a lot more money, so they, you don't have to, they don't have to run around so much. They can just have a few places where they need to have as home base. Then they can get going, you know. It just doesn't happen that way, unfortunately, very often. It's really kind of tragic. But uh, in those days, a church like Paul would come passing through Rome, and those guys could give him funds, they could give him advice, they could give him counsel, they could send him with some people, they could help him out, and move him along, and he'd be on his way. And uh, so the, the whole launch point idea, that's Paul's desire. Visit Rome, fellowship with you guys, get to see you, say hi, and keep moving on. Move on to the new territories. But first, this is a rather interesting. He has immediate plans of a completely different kind. And for an evangelist to stop going to new lands where he's going to do something else, it must be important, or he wouldn't do it. And Paul says he's, gonna, he's got another thing he's got to do first. So he doesn't follow after a certain direction just because he wants to. He has this matter of duty to attend to in his mind. He doesn't think he can just leave without getting this done. And he doesn't want to leave this job he's got to do in somebody else's hands. What's he got to do? He's got to deliver some money. What, to his, like, his bookie? No, no, not, not that. For some time, Paul, if you read 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, Paul had a collection going on through all the churches in Greece, in Achaia and Macedonia, at least, collecting money to send to the church in Jerusalem, which was not his home church. He'd only been there a couple times. Gentile Christians sending money to Jewish Christians. Lots of money. Verse 26. Verse 25, But now I am going to Jerusalem, serving the saints from Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution to the, for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Why are they doing that? What is this all about? Aren't there poor people in Achaia and Macedonia that those churches could take care of? What's going on? It seems to have been Paul's idea, and I think that's why he wants to accompany the money to Jerusalem to make sure his idea it comes to fruition, that... Well, he's got a couple reasons to do this. One, Christians are always to have a concern for the poor. That's just one of the rules. But why the poor in Jerusalem? Well, look at that in Galatians chapter 2. It's just right after Romans here, after Corinthians. First and Corinthians, Galatians. Paul tells a story of his first trip to Jerusalem as a Christian. Now, how did Paul become a Christian? He was a Pharisee, right? And he was persecuting the church. And he actually got letters of authority from the Jerusalem Council to go to Syria, to Damascus, to hunt Christians there and brutalize them. Kill them, jail them, torture them, 
cause him to deny Christ through his, his act. On the way, Christ decides he's going to become an apostle and a missionary. And he shows up and just tells him that. And he's blinded for a brief amount of time. He's saved by Christ dramatically on the road to Syria, immediately commissioned as an apostle. One of the requirements for being an apostle is you have to see Christ eyeball to eyeball. You have to know him personally. Well, that was it. And, and you have to be, of course, ordained by Christ to that ministry. And he was. And he ministered as such, as an apostle of Christ, for some time in these northern regions of Syria and Cilicia, above Israel, north of Israel. Then after three years, he says, he went to Jerusalem and spent two weeks in Peter's house. And there he met Peter and James, the Lord's brother, the Lord Jesus Christ's brother James. And they parted on good terms and... Uh, he wasn't really well known in Jerusalem. It was kind of a quiet visit. And then 14 years go by and he's ministering in these northern regions up there near Antioch. Antioch eventually became his home church. But he has to go back to Jerusalem because an issue's come up. So he says in Galatians 2 that 14 years after that, Paul and his friend Barnabas and Titus, who wrote the book, uh, the book of Titus was written to. They go to Jerusalem because some divisive individuals in the church are trying to force Gentile converts, which is the group Paul's working with, to become Jewish. In other words, the doctrine was this. If you are a Gentile and you want to become a Christian and follow the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, you have to become a Jew to become a Christian. So you've got to get circumcised. You've got to eat kosher. You've got to put yourself under the law. You've got to be a yoke fellow of the law. That's what you would be. Otherwise, you're not right with the God. Paul says in verse 4 of Galatians chapter 2, it was because of the false brethren who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. Circumcision, kosher food, Sabbath keeping, ritual washing, ceremonial purity. They said to be a Christian, you had to be Jewish. And Paul said, that is destroying our liberty. That is trying to put us into bondage. Because that's not what God requires. That was the first great issue of the Christian church. The first time they ever held a grand council to solve a theological problem was on that issue. That council is described in Acts chapter 15. But to keep to the point, Paul's trip to Jerusalem was to get things clear to defend the Gentile Christians and the gospel of Christ as he presented it. So Paul's group... Paul and Barnabas and Titus meets with Peter, James, the Lord's brother James, and John, the apostle. And they were completely and fully received by these Jerusalem apostles as equal men and equal stature and, and weight. And they all had the same gospel. They had the same message. They all agreed. So no division in the church was going to happen. And then Paul adds in chapter 2 of Galatians, verse 10, they... Peter and James and John only asked us to remember the poor the very thing I also was eager to do isn't that an interesting comment in the midst of all this grand theology and really the whole theme of Galatians is this battle with um, Judaizing tendencies in the church he stops to remind us of what they reminded him of by the way Paul um, you know we got this doctrine stuff all straightened out but don't forget the poor he says, you know, that was exactly where my head was too. I didn't want to forget the poor either. That's what he's saying. Interesting that he would even mention that. So in the midst of all this great doctrinal things, Christian charity is not forgotten. 
And I think the seed for Paul's gift idea may have begun on that trip to Jerusalem. So why Greek Christians sending money a long and dangerous trek to Jerusalem, to Jews in Jerusalem? Well, the need was great. You know, in the very early years, Christians weren't persecuted by Romans. They were persecuted by the Jews, primarily, in the earliest, earliest years. Being a Christian in Jerusalem was not easy. Think about something as simple as having a business or seeking a job in a Jewish state when you had converted to Christianity and you were excluded from the synagogue and considered a traitor to your people, you would, be, you would lose out big time financially unless you had some kind of external resources. So there were a lot of poor Christians in Jerusalem. It would be like having a business in Provo, Utah and being a Mormon all your life and then coming to Christ and leaving that church. 99% of the people around you are Mormons. And every kid at school that your kids go to school with are Mormons. And you are a bad guy. See? If you had a business in town, it'd be done. It'd be done. You can measure the life of your business in days in situations like that. So persecution meant a lot of Christians in Jerusalem suffering poverty, which they were willing to endure. For Jesus' sake, they were willing to give up all of their material possessions to, be, to know him, but the need was very great. So there's a real need to be met. And these Christians, probably more than most Christians in other places in the Roman Empire, at that time, were suffering. So I suspect, though, that there's a little bit more to that than just the fact that they're having a hard time of it. In fact, I know there is. The tension between Gentile Christianity and Jewish Christianity was a very real thing. And although there was unity at the top among the apostles, Peter and Paul, and they got along great. Barnabas and John, they got along great. All those guys were agreed on the gospel and everything else. They, they were with each other on all that stuff. But undoubtedly there were old prejudices that were still at work in the church, especially from the Jews who were taught to regard Gentiles as totally unclean from birth. You know, a Jew was raised to not even go under the roof of a Gentile. And you know what the Jews did? If they went to another country and they came home when they got to the border of Israel, you know what they did? Shook off all the Gentile dust as thoroughly as possible before coming back into the pure land. Now, that gives you a certain mentality about other people. Different people. When their dust contaminates your homeland. See? So let's say a person that was raised like that becomes a Christian. They're told the Gentiles that are in Christ are equal brothers, but prejudices, you know, they're hard to shake. They're hard to shake. We know that from our own history in American Christianity. And that's what I think Paul was trying to overcome. What happens when you have that sort of prejudicial frame of mind towards another people, Gentiles in this case? And then those people send you a lot of money, just out of the blue, to take care of your poor. Wouldn't that knock the wall down a little bit more? <laughs> I think Paul knew it would. And so Paul's going to accompany the gift because he doesn't want the gift to just show up and say, oh, here's some money that came up for the poor. Oh, let's get it out there. You know, he wants to come and say, do you know, brothers, where this money came from? For years, the Christians, the Gentile pagan converts in Greece, in Macedonia, in pagan lands, every week they set aside a little bit of money for you. And I'm here to deliver it for you. 
for them. Wouldn't that change their attitude a little bit? So he wasn't going to let the money go there without... He could have trusted somebody else to take it there, but I think he wanted to make the message a little bit clearer. So he does. He goes. He, that's his plan. He's, got to take, he's going to do this thing. So giving is a wonderful bond, a healing touch. It builds unity. And Paul wouldn't let the Gentiles think of this as charity for some inferior people either. No, in Paul's mind, the Gentiles actually owed it to the Jews because Jewish Christianity is the source of Gentile blessing. If you look at Romans 15, verse 26, just a very interesting perspective on the whole thing. He says, Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. So he wouldn't let the Gentiles think, yeah, you know, we've got it all together. We'll just send some money to these poor Jewish people. Say, you know what? You've got a debt to the Jews. This is his now he's talking to the Gentiles, see? You're indebted to the Jews. He's, see how he's bridging the gap on both sides? The Jews are going to receive all this money from these pagans. And to the pagans, he's saying, you know, you have a big debt to these Jewish people. The gospel came from them. I'm Jewish, Paul was saying. And Peter's Jewish, and John is Jewish, and all the apostles are Jewish, and Jesus was Jewish, and uh, it's all coming from there. So you have received eternal life based on God's work through this covenant people that he had, and now it's broadening out and you're included, but you know, the source was there. So don't you think you ought to share a little back with them? Because they're really suffering right now. Yeah, that seems right. Yeah, we're indebted to them, aren't we? So from their side... They're doing that too. So the gospel came to the Jews first and from them to us as Gentiles. So we owe them, Paul says. So a material gift is a small reward for receiving a spiritual treasure. So he's got this whole unity thing plan going. And he's going to do that before he goes to Spain. So we see Paul's heart, his longings. He takes Christ to distant lands. We saw his plan, his gift to Jerusalem. Finally, we see his need of prayer. I don't want to take too long with this, but I do want to cover it because this is really interesting. His prayer. Verse 28. Therefore, when I have finished this, the, the money idea, and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ because all that stuff's going to be all finished. Now I urge you, brethren, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. That I may be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea, that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in the joy, in joy by the will of God, and find refreshing rest in your company. Now, you know, apostles need prayer too, right? And he meant earnest prayer. In verse 30, he uses that word strive. Strive together with me in your prayers. That Greek word is agonizo. Agonize. That's where we get that word agonize. It's a Greek word. It means to strive, to wrestle. He says, strive with me in prayer. Effort. Work with me in prayer. There's a real lesson there about what we do with the information on our prayer list about missionaries that's on there every week. You need to labor in prayer for those guys. Prayer matters. When I agonize in prayer, I expect to see results. And I usually get to see them. Not because I'm a great prayer, but because God is faithful. But it might not happen the way I want it to. The results might be different than what I expected. 
And that's exactly what happens here. What are Paul's requests? Three things. Verse 31, that I may be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea. Last time he was there, the Jews wanted to kill him. So he knows it might not be a friendly reception. <laughs> Two, that my service in Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. That they accept the gift, that the whole thing works out, that it goes well, that I'm received well. Three, verse 32, that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find rest in your company. That's pretty basic, very clear, very specific. Delivered from the disobedient in Judea, acceptable service to the saints, come to Rome in joy by the will of God. You know what? They all happen. All that happened. But not the way you would have expected it to happen. Let's see it. Look at Acts chapter 21. Acts is right before Romans. Now the second request is answered first. His reception among the saints. If you look at chapter 21, verse 17... It says, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. There it is. And now the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. That's it. That's the answer to number one. It's actually the second request, that my service in Jerusalem may, be, may prove acceptable to the saints. Is it acceptable to the saints? You bet. They're glad to see him. They welcome him. After he explains what he's doing with the Gentiles, they're glorifying God. Answer to prayer. Thank you for praying for me, Romans. He's saying. Now, now it's, what's interesting is the book of Romans was written before this happened. The book of Acts was written after it happened. So we actually get to see his prayers answered in between times. Okay, next. What about those who are disobedient in Judea? Well, let's pick it up at verse 20 of chapter 21 in Acts. It says, when they heard it, they began glorifying God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they have also been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore, do this for what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses in order that they may shave their heads and all will know that there is nothing to the things that have been told about you but that you yourself also walk orderly keeping the law. In other words, there's these guys, Christian, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, they want to take a vow, go to the temple because the Jews still went to the temple that were Christians and um, uh, pay for their expenses and make it look like you're really Jewish. Just emphasize your Jewishness is what they're saying. So people will know you're not anti-law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. That's in chapter 15. That was the result of the big council. Then Paul took the men the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days for purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Verse 27. And when... The seven days were almost over. The Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the multitude and laid hands on him. Those were guys from the areas he'd been ministering. Saw him there. Crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid! This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Not true. But that's what they were accusing him of. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. 
And all the city was aroused, and the people rushed together, and taking a hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. And while they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Uh, he's in trouble. His life is in trouble. But he asked for prayer that he would be delivered. Here's how the prayer is answered. Verse 32. At once he, the Roman commander, took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them and they saw the commander and the soldiers. They stopped beating Paul. So they're wailing on him. They're beating him with sticks and all this stuff and throwing rocks at him or whatever. And then they see the Roman soldiers running down the hill to where they are beating Paul. Then, no, look at this bloody fellow down here on the ground. I wonder how that happened. You know, they just kind of straighten up because the cops have shown up, right? And uh, the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he began asking who he was and what he had done. But among the crowd were some shouting one thing and some another. And when he could not find out the facts on account of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he got to the stairs, it so happened that he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. So Paul's being dragged up the stairs by these soldiers. For the multitude of the people kept following behind, crying out, Away with him! And as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? So the, the commander's thinking he's this weird character. And he has no idea who Paul is. So he's thinking, oh, maybe he's this guy, this terrorist, really, really. Paul says, no, I'm a Jew of Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. So he gives his talk, his testimony about how he came to Christ. And he explains his encounter with Christ and why he now is an apostle of Christ. He makes this speech from the top of the stairs, chained to two soldiers and the crowd of very unhappy Jews down below. And he gives this great speech. But when he gets to the part about God wanting him to save the Gentiles, something bad happens. Verse 22 of chapter 22. Okay, let's skip down to there. They listened to him up to this statement. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth! He should not be allowed to live! And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him in that way. Let's ask Paul some questions, and we'll do that by laying his back open. We always get better truth that way. <laughs> and when they stretched him out with thongs, so they, what they do is they tie thongs on your wrists and on your feet, and then the soldiers just pull on the thongs from both ends so you're all stretched out. And then they just flail you to bits with that Roman flail that has the lead balls tied into the leather thongs and the glass pieces, and they just rip you to shreds. That's a scourging. They did to Jesus, too. So while they're stretching him out, Paul, very wisely, speaks up. Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman citizen? It isn't lawful. Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? untried when the centurion heard this he went to the commander and told him saying what are you about to do this man's a Roman and he was he was a citizen and the commander came and said to him tell me are you a Roman and he said yes the commander answered I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money Paul said I was actually born a citizen oh therefore those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him and the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman because he had put him in chains. That was even a wrong thing to do. 
So to make a long story short, Paul ends up a prisoner of Roman justice for many months. But he was delivered from the Jews in answer to prayer. Right? Not the way he planned to be delivered, maybe, but he was delivered. How about visiting Rome? A third request. Well, in chapter 25 of Acts, turn there, Paul is before the new governor, Festus, and in verse 6, he says, After he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea, and on the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. This is the new governor. After he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him which they could not prove. While Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, he's the governor of Festus, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. It was his right as a Roman citizen. In other words, the guy, so the, the governor is saying, I'll take you down to Jerusalem and we'll have a trial. Paul says, that means I'm dead. And if I'm not afraid to die, if I've done this stuff, but I haven't done this stuff, so I appeal to Caesar. If you were a citizen of Rome, you had that right. But what did that mean? A change of venue for your trial. You're going to be tried in Rome. That's how he's going to go to Rome. Under arrest. So off he goes to Rome. Verse 32, Herod Agrippa... He has a whole thing before him. He says, this man might have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar. So off he goes to Rome. Now the prayer request was that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find rest in your company. Well, on the way to Rome, Paul's ship, which is full of prisoners, is shipwrecked and they're stranded on the island of Malta. And after being there for a while, he finally catches ship for Rome. Now turn to the last chapter of the book of Acts, chapter 28, verse 11. At the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship which had wintered at the island, which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. And after we put in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. New Jersey. And from there, we sailed around and arrived at Regium. And a day later, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puccioli. Nice Roman town. There we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and thus we came to Rome. And the, and the brethren, when they had heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Appius and the three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. He met with the brothers from Rome. He found rest in their company and joy in coming to them in the will of God. So who did Paul, the prisoner, stay with? The brethren. And they were met by brothers from near Rome. And the book of Acts concludes with these words, verse 30. And he stayed there two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. All of his prayers were answered. It just took a very strong, long, circuitous, sort of troublesome route to get there, including floggings almost, 
shipwrecks, imprisonments, chains, being left in the dungeon for months and months at a time while these governors were deciding what to do with them and all of that kind of stuff. God works in answer to our prayers and he is glorified in doing so his way. For he is so much wiser than we are and he accomplishes so much more. So there's Paul the evangelist enduring great hardship, working hard, longing to move forward, concerned about where he's been and in need of prayer. Pray for our missionaries. Get to know about them. Pray for them. They have Paul's gift. They have the same gift Paul had from the Holy Spirit in this area of being a missionary. And we need to support them. It can be very lonely and very difficult, but it needs to be sustained by us, just like he needed to be sustained in every way. Prayers, finances, and encouragement. Missions is God's work, and missionaries are God's Marine Corps. They really are. First to fight, first to die, you know? So don't let them fight alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great example of Paul as a true missionary-hearted individual, Lord, a man who took his gifts to the limit because he had such great faith, always trusting in you, the God who enables when we think we can't continue and does wonders through people who are very small and insignificant in the eyes of the world. We thank you for that. We pray that you would help us to help others and maybe, maybe to go ourselves listening for your call. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.